Well, if you would take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts 16, a shorter text this morning, verses 11 to 15. And I was talking to the ladies up here a moment ago, and uh, Madeline, who was, who was one of them, my daughter, she asked what text. Uh, she's preparing to take notes, I imagine. And I told her 11 to 15, and another said, well, that's short. And I said, yes, yeah, a short text, not necessarily a short sermon. I don't know, those two things are commensurate always in my preaching. Acts 16, verses 11 to 15. And when you arrive there, because this is the word of the living God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand to your feet to hear from the God who still speaks? Acts 16, I'll begin reading in verse 11. Luke wrote, as he was carried along by God's spirit, these words, so setting sail from Troas, that was a mouthful actually, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The grass withers And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, church family. You may be seated. Micah, my youngest, is in fourth grade here at FBA, our church academy. And he has somewhat recently, I'm not really sure when it was, but it was somewhat recently that he had the assignment of identifying patterns in math. You may remember this, you may not. Some of you younger ones may remember it. And so he might receive a list of numbers that include something like the following. Okay, you ready for this? You ready to get those intellectual juices flowing? One, two, four, eight. And what comes next? That's fantastic. You're brilliant. You're absolutely brilliant. Now, how in the world would you know that 16 came next? Well, you knew that because you noticed a pattern. Some of you are thinking, I didn't notice a pattern. That's okay. You didn't plan on doing math in your head in the middle of the sermon. Let me give you another one. We are in the middle of February, which is a part of what season? You had to think about that. We had to think about it. These are not the kinds of things you anticipate doing 
when you gather together with God's people at church, right? You're thinking, preacher, you're supposed to be talking to us. We're not supposed to be talking to you. Yeah, winter. After winter is then spring. After spring is summer. You got to think about it, I know. After summer is fall. And guess what? This happens every single year. Every year. Moreover, the pattern of the seasons informs various decisions we make. We dress a certain way depending on the season with some exceptions in East Tennessee. Layers at certain times of the year, right? So that as the day wears on, we can take layers off. But the weather actually informs us and we learn to identify the weather in relationship to the seasons. This is a pattern. Life is full and filled with patterns, and these patterns instruct us. Well, why do I say that? I say that because there are patterns throughout the book of Acts. And we have observed one that I don't know that I've actually identified explicitly before you, but I think as you think through Acts, and if you've been with us somewhat lately, you'll, you'll recognize this pattern. And this pattern occurs throughout the book of Acts, and it occurs explicitly, really, in this short text, which is one of the reasons why, by the way, I chose to preach verses 11 to 15 as an isolated homiletical unit. It has this clearly identifiable pattern. And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make our way through Acts 16, verses 11 to 15, by making four observations. No matter what I did, I couldn't, I couldn't develop it down to three, okay? Four observations that together constitute a pattern for gospel ministry. Now, I'm hesitant to say this is a pattern for gospel ministry because many of us, when we hear the word ministry, we assume that the pastor is talking about vocational ministry. That is what the pastor does or what pastors do or what those on staff do. We really could say this is a pattern for the Christian life. The pattern we observe in Acts 16 verses 11 to 15 should inform each and every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. And so there are four parts or four observations, and I'm going to give them to you up front so that you can easily identify them as we move along in the text. So you can jot these down if you're taking notes. If not, well, you can just listen and log them away in your mind. The first observation of the pattern is simply this. Paul traveled with the gospel. It's really simple. Paul traveled with the gospel. Second, Paul shared the gospel. So first, Paul traveled with the gospel. That is, he was intentional about where he was going and why he was going. He was was going with intentionality with the gospel. And then secondly, Paul shared the gospel. Third, third observation in our text that forms this pattern, Lydia believed the gospel. Lydia believed the gospel. So after Paul traveled with the gospel, shared the gospel, and Lydia believed the gospel, fourth, Lydia displayed the gospel. She displayed the gospel. And we'll look at each of these in their turn in the text. And I would suggest to you this morning that this pattern should form a kind of paradigm for each and every one of us as followers of Christ. Now, young worshipers, and so the younger theologians who are in the room with us, I want to give you a couple of questions 
that I'd like for you to be able to answer by the end of the sermon. Now, by all means, you can focus on this broader outline, right? Paul traveled with the gospel. Paul shared the gospel. Lydia believed the gospel. Lydia displayed the gospel. That's going to be the outline for the sermon. But there are a couple of questions for our younger worshipers. I want them to be able to focus on so that they're in the text with us. And you can look ahead. You know, that's fine. And uh, just... For the sake of giving permission, parents, grandparents, you can talk to your younger worshiper throughout the sermon. I'm going to assume you're talking about something riveting in the sermon, okay? So feel free to do that. Here are the two questions, young worshipers, I want you to focus on. First, who opened Lydia's heart in the text? Who opened Lydia's heart? You need to notice this in the text. She believes the gospel. That's the third observation in our pattern. But she believes the gospel as a result of someone opening her heart. Who opened her heart, younger worshiper? And then second, the second question I want you to be able to ask and answer by the conclusion of the sermon is what did Lydia do after she believed the gospel and was baptized? So the first thing she did at least in the text, is she end up getting baptized, right? She and her household get baptized. But then the text, Luke tells us she does something else. What does she do after she believes the gospel and she's baptized? This should inform us, I think, as followers of Jesus, all right? So younger worshipers, as always, if you have these answered after the sermon, I would love to hear your answers. If you don't have these answered and you have questions, I would love to hear your questions, okay? All right, well, let's begin with our first observation from the broader outline The broader pattern, and our first observation comes from verses 11 and 12. Look down at the text with me, if you would, verses 11 and 12. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, notice how rapid this is, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Now he begins to slow down the narrative a little bit. He really starts to slow it down at verse 14, but he begins to slow down the narrative after verse 12. Verse 13 is a bit slower, and then verse 14, much slower. We focus on one person. But at this point, Luke is moving at a rapid pace. Why? Because he wants to emphasize that Paul is traveling with the gospel. He's on the go. And you may recall this from a couple of weeks ago, if you were with us, that the Holy Spirit had recently in the text prevented the Apostle Paul from going into a couple of places and sharing Christ. And I suggested to you that one of the reasons why the Spirit of God was preventing Paul or forbidding Paul from going into certain regions was because he was pushing Paul to keep moving, keep taking the gospel throughout. At this point, it's going to be the Roman Empire when we get to Philippi. So Paul is traveling with the gospel, and he's traveling, by the way, with his companion Silas and Timothy at this point. We were introduced to Timothy not that long ago in Acts, and likely Luke, the physician who is the author of the book of Acts. And we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Luke now begins to talk about, or actually use the first person plural, we. We went, we traveled. They came to us, and so it seems that Luke now is with the Apostle Paul as Paul is traveling with the gospel. And they arrive at Philippi. Now, for those of you who love trivia, Philippi was named after Philip II of Macedon. Now, if you don't know who Philip II of Macedon was, he was the father of Alexander the Great. 
So if you don't know Philip II, doubtless you know Alexander the Great. Well, Philip II was Alexander the Great's father, and Philip I was named after Philip II. Famous city at this time. And recall, recall that Paul's trip to Philippi, again, just building a little context, was the result of a vision in Acts 16, verse 9. We were told by Luke that Paul had seen a vision and then they interpreted the vision. A man of Macedonia was calling out to Paul, come over here and help us. And they interpreted the vision as God calling them to go to Macedonia and a part of Macedonia is Philippi. Now, Philippi, I mentioned this, is a Roman colony. I mention that because Luke mentions it. And you need to get in the habit of doing this. Sometimes it's difficult to answer this question, but you ought to always ask the question, why did the biblical author, as he was carried along by God's spirit, include this detail? Why mention that this was a Roman colony? There are perhaps a number of reasons. One reason may be that later in the chapter, Paul will appeal to his Roman citizenship when he's mistreated. He will appeal to his Roman citizenship. And so it may be a way for Luke, as the Spirit's guiding him, to tie all this together. That's part of it, I think. But then there is this broader purpose in the book of Acts, and it's what we've seen. What's happening? The gospel is spreading through God's people who are empowered by God's Spirit proclaiming God's word. And so as it's spreading, now we're getting through the Roman Empire, into the Roman Empire. Now we're in Philippi, which is a Roman colony, a kind of microcosm of Rome itself. And remember where Acts is going to conclude. It concludes in what city? We've not preached this yet, but we've said it a few times. You remember this? Where does Acts conclude? Paul is where? He's in Rome. And so we're getting a sneak peek already of this in Acts 16. That's where we're headed. We're headed to the nucleus of the Roman Empire where Paul will spend his days sharing the gospel, teaching about the kingdom of God, as Acts 28 tells us. Okay, so Paul traveled with the gospel. Second, second part of this pattern that we see in the the text is Paul shared the gospel. He shared the gospel. Verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, customary for the Apostle Paul, as he's traveling on now his second missionary journey, this is, remember, there was a first missionary journey, if you're with us for that, and that first missionary journey concluded just before the Jerusalem Council. And so now he's on his second missionary journey. Customary for Paul was to enter a city, and on the Sabbath day, he would enter into the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, which was just the place for Jewish instruction and prayer and worship. But notice in our text, something is different. In Philippi, rather than entering the synagogue, where does he go? He goes outside of the gate, and uh, there are a number of potential reasons to mention that. Uh, not, the, not the least of which is if something wasn't large enough to be officially recognized, it was to take place outside of the city. So he went outside of the gate by the riverside where they supposed there would be a place of prayer. Now, why not a synagogue? Well, we don't know with certainty, but it seems that there may not have been enough Jews in the area to have a synagogue. And so if you didn't have enough Jews to have a synagogue, what would you have? Well, you had a place of prayer. 
There's some discussion about this, but I, I think that's the best way of understanding what is taking place. And so it was likely that there was not a synagogue in Philippi, this Roman city, Roman colony, I should say, due to the small number of Jews, but you had a small collection of predominantly, maybe exclusively, we just don't know, Jewish women or women who were practicing Jews. We're going to see that Lydia was not actually a Jewish person ethnically, but was a worshiper of God, which probably means she was a Greek. She was a Gentile who converted to Judaism. And they had gathered together for worship every Sabbath day. And that's where Paul and the companions who are traveling with Paul go. Now, Luke makes a point of informing us that Paul and his companions spoke to the women gathered. You need to see this. This is lost on us every time. As 21st century people, this is lost on us. He writes, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. That statement in itself would have been somewhat controversial. Not entirely. It's possible. It's possible that Paul here is just viewed as a kind of teacher, traveling Jewish teacher who's now going to speak to the Jewish women who have now gathered, but it's unlikely that when you're writing, by the way, if you're a first century Jew um, or a first century person, it's unlikely that you would include, this is just the case, women in your account unless you cared most about being truthful. Women just weren't viewed as being as dignified as men. It's just the case. It was a challenging time in many respects, to be a woman. And so here, for Luke, as he's carried along by God's Spirit, right? So we're supposed to get this as the Spirit of God is using Luke, the human instrument, to pen these words. We're, we're to see that Paul and his companions sat down to speak to the women. In fact, the rest of our text will focus on a particular woman. It's not just women broadly. It's a particular woman named Lydia that will focus on The reason I say this is because the Christian message, the gospel message in the first century challenged fundamental cultural assumptions about women. And again, we we lose this. We lose this in our our context. Today, today the Christian message challenges fundamental assumptions about gender, but they're very different assumptions. It's fascinating, isn't it? The gospel always challenges fundamental cultural assumptions. Always. Which is why this side of resurrection, we will never have a Christian society. We may have societies that are more or less influenced by Christianity, but we will never properly have a Christian society as a whole. The gospel is consistently challenging these common fundamental cultural assumptions. And so in that context, it challenged these cultural assumptions about the inferiority of women. In the church, what did the gospel say? In the church, women are co-heirs with men. They gain an equal standing before God in Christ alongside of these men who are now their brothers. This was radical and quite scandalous. 
in the first century. And while there remained a clear distinction between men and women on the basis of gender and on the basis of creation, that was clear in the early church, that's clear throughout scripture, and there remained a distinction between men and women on the basis even of roles. Both men and women possessed an equality of position and status in Christ. And this is, this is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 3, verse 28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel is challenging some of these cultural assumptions. And this is the message Paul is preaching to a group of women gathered outside of Philippi. And the good news that Paul would have shared with these women by that riverside is, is the good news I'm privileged to share with you this morning. It's the good news that serves as the foundation for which we have gathered together as a church. And the good news goes something like this. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, and no matter what's been done to you, you can have and enjoy forever a right relationship with the God who made you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Male, female, boy, girl, no matter. Anyone who embraces Jesus Christ in faith, who surrenders to Christ, who treasures Christ, who recognizes that they are spiritually and morally bankrupt, that is to say, they can't work their way up into a right relationship with the God who made them. Every one of us who recognizes that something in us is broken and that this world is broken, but God has decisively done something about it through the coming of Christ. And everyone who embraces this Christ has eternal life. That's the good news Paul preached, and it's the good news I'm privileged to preach to you this morning. And so I would encourage you, if you've not embraced Christ, or, or if you have additional questions about what it means to embrace Christ, and, and what are some of the implications of this Christian message you just want to talk about the Christian message, or you want to talk about the gospel, we would love to visit with you after the service. And so please, please consider boldly and courageously to come to us. Would you do that? So right after the service, I mentioned to you a room out there before you leave this building, taking a left out of one of these double doors. You'll see it out there on the right-hand side called Crossroads. Come to one of our elders who will be standing out there and uh, let us know. Let us know you'd like to talk more about Christianity. Perhaps you'd like to embrace Jesus Christ for the very first time. Perhaps you just want to know what it means to trust in this Jesus. It would be our privilege to come alongside of you. So first, Paul traveled with the gospel. Second, Paul shared the gospel. Third, third, Lydia believed the gospel. So Paul shared the gospel, then Lydia responds to the gospel. Now glance with me at verse 14. And we're introduced to this woman named Lydia. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, do you see how he's really slowing things down now? Now an entire verse goes into describing this woman's experience. 
Paul is traveling. It takes a verse or two to talk about all of the travel that takes place between Paul and his companions. But now Luke throws it into first gear and focuses on a particular woman. And there are three descriptions. We won't talk about this at length, but I'll just mention them to you. Three descriptions of Lydia. First, she's from the city of Thyatira, which is a western part or in the western part of Asia Minor. Uh, Why does that matter? Well, you may recall that it was Asia. The Spirit prevented Paul from going to preach the gospel in Asia. I just wonder. There are a whole host of possibilities here. I may not be able, I may not be able to travel to portions of the world today, but it's tremendous how in God's sovereignty he brings people from those portions of the world right here to Knoxville. And so while Paul is prevented from going to Asia Minor, God brings someone from Asia Minor in his path. Second, she was a seller of purple goods. Perhaps more accurately, she was a dealer in purple cloth. And a lot of conversation about this. I don't want to chase this rabbit too far. I think it was likely that Lydia was a wealthier woman, not simply because she was a seller or a dealer in purple cloth, though that would have perhaps indicated that she was on the wealthier side of things, but because she has a home into which she will eventually welcome Paul and his companions. And no husband is mentioned. So it appears that she has a degree of social standing, has her own place, and is able to welcome Paul and his companions a bit later. So she is likely on the wealthier side of this. And by the way, oh, I do want to mention this. I want to mention it, okay? And, um, oh, that's it. That's all. Again, why does the Spirit choose to include certain details? The early church does this beautifully. Early church Christians, at least the literature we've got from the early church. I don't think we're quite as gifted at it. I'm not, but I try to do it. Why? Why mention this? Maybe because of her wealth, maybe just to demonstrate that she would have had the, the opportunity to be hospitable in unique ways. But, but the color purple is significant throughout Scripture. You need to know that. The color purple is significant. Let me give you a couple of ways. One of the ways is throughout in Exodus, if you were to, if you were to do a search on purple— I don't know if it's the majority of uses, but it's a, it's a large percentage of usages in Scripture that occur in Exodus. Why? Because the tabernacle was purple. And the priestly garments were purple. Purple and blue, those are the two colors, consistently. There are others. Scarlet occurs sometimes. Purple and blue, primary. Now, in a book, okay, I don't want to get too far off here. Throw something at me if I do. Please don't. That was a joke. In a book that has emphasized that the church is the new temple, the new tabernacle. That is, God's people is the place where he resides. It's intriguing to me that Lydia is described as a dealer in purple cloth. I just wonder. I wonder if there's something there. Lydia is about to become a part of the true tabernacle through faith in Christ. And so I'm wondering if the Spirit of God is flagging that for us as we read through the text. I don't know. Maybe I'm just surmising and there's no basis, but it sure is fun. 
it sure is fun to do so concerning God's word. If you're going to surmise, surmise in the text with appropriate parameters, of course. All right? And then third, Lydia was a worshiper of God, which is a way of describing her. I mentioned this as a Gentile or probably a Greek who worshiped the, the God of Israel. So she's not an ethnic Jew, but she's a practicing Jew. All right? And then notice the final sentence of verse 14. The Lord, pay attention, young worshipers. One of your questions. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Remember that question we started the sermon with? Who opened Lydia's heart? In the text, it was the Lord. Now, by that, we are to understand the risen and ascended Jesus. Remember how Acts begins? Luke, as he's writing Acts chapter 1, mentions that he had already written another book, the Gospel of Luke, and in that book, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Acts is all that Jesus continued to do and teach from heaven. So here it's the Lord Jesus who opens her heart. We would, of course, say, in light of how Jesus is operating in Acts, that it was the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Because it is Jesus, after all, who sends the Spirit. And so the Spirit of God, younger worshipers, that's a lot, I know. You could just say the Lord opened her heart. You could say Jesus opened her heart. You could say Jesus opened her heart through the Holy Spirit, and that's bonus points. Bonus points for that one, okay? Now, Lydia's faith then is the result of the Lord's work. It's the result of the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Lydia believes the gospel because God the Holy Spirit works in her heart. Now, what do we call this? We call this regeneration. This is, if you want to put a, a, a name on it, it's the doctrine of regeneration. That is, when the Spirit of God takes someone who is dead in their sins and gives them life in Christ. Now, don't miss this. It precedes faith. It precedes faith. And that's a class all to itself. But the Spirit of God gives life to the dead sinner, and the necessary result is that person now who is alive in Christ trusts Christ. It does not, regeneration does not result in bare intellectual assent to facts. It's not simply that we, once we're regenerated by the Spirit, we, we simply affirm that what Jesus said about himself was true. It, it includes that, but it, it's more than that. Regeneration reaches into the inner recesses of our affections. It's how we feel. It's what we love. In other words, when the Spirit of God works in someone to give them life like this, they go from not trusting in and delighting in Christ to trusting in and delighting in Christ. I'll never forget, you know, this process. For me, in some respects, it feels like an eternity ago because it, it was another life. That's how Augustine describes it. It was another life. But in other respects, it feels like it was yesterday I came to trust in Jesus Christ. And as I reflect on that, 
I didn't know what, what was happening, of course. I still am baffled by what was happening, but I think there's, there's a bit more understanding because of God's word and hopeful, hopefully maturity in Christ. But I, I went from being a person, in my case, who was reading a big King James tabletop Bible in a prayer room in the middle of the night, multiple times a week, after I got off work, I was almost finished with high school. No one else was there. And I'm just seeking whether God is real. And I'm doing so in a number of ways. And one of the ways I'm doing it is reading this big King James Version tabletop Bible. I really wish I had it. And I, I remember reflecting at some point, and it wasn't, look, in my case, it wasn't like a, oh, there, there it happened. I'm alive. It, it wasn't that way. It is for some people, maybe. Maybe some of you would say that. But for me, what happened is over a period of time, I reflected. And at some point, I went from not trusting in Jesus to trusting in Jesus. I went from not loving Christ to being enthralled by him and wanting to please him. And I remember reflecting and thinking, how is that even possible as a young Christian? And in my mind, of course, thinking, I've never even shaken his hand. Though I had not seen him, I loved him. How did it happen? It happened because the Spirit had given me life. That's regeneration. And because the Spirit had worked in my affections and inclined my will to Christ, I embraced Christ in faith. And the journey began. A journey that has plenty of warts and a lot of grace and hopefully in God's mercy, some progress spiritually. Lydia's journey began the way every Christian's journey begins, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And I would encourage you, and I'm far afield at this point, we'll come back and finish with the last observation of our pattern in just a moment. I would encourage you that there really are a number of takeaways from this doctrine of regeneration in Scripture. A number of takeaways. I'm going to mention two of them to you. There are others. First, so if we understand, if we understand that even our faith is the result of the gracious and effective work of the Spirit of God, then God receives all the glory for our salvation. Every bit of it. We believe. We believe. Yes. But I would submit to you, if I'm understanding Scripture correctly, that we, we believe as a result of the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. And then second takeaway for us concerning this beautiful doctrine is if we believe that others, if we believe that others coming to faith in Jesus Christ is the result of the work of the Spirit, we can now confidently share Christ with the comfort of knowing that our success in sharing the gospel is in the hand of God, not in our own abilities. You will never be able to argue someone into the kingdom. Now, God may use the arguments, but it will be God who gives them life. He uses means, okay? He uses Christians who are faithfully going to proclaim Christ. And some of us do it better than others. I look back at some of the ways I shared Christ and I think, wow, I made a mess of it. 
And then years passed, and I've had the privilege of talking to some of those people, and I've had, at times, they'll come up to me and say, hey, you shared this. And I remember thinking, no, I didn't. (laughs) It sounds wonderful, but that never came out of my mouth. What was going on? The Spirit of God was using a frail instrument, an inadequate instrument. It was the internal preacher they were hearing. It was the Holy Spirit. And uh, that gives me a tremendous amount of comfort. I hope it does you too. Go preach Christ with confidence that it is the Spirit of God who gives life. And he chooses to do it through you. What a privilege. What a joy. Okay, that's, that's enough for now about that. In addition to traveling with the gospel, Paul traveled with the gospel And he shared the gospel, and Lydia believed the gospel. Finally, Lydia displayed the gospel. Boy, I may may really do an injustice to some of this. If you have questions, you can come up to me afterward, and I'd love to talk more about it. Look with me at verse 15. Verse 15, and after she, that is Lydia, was baptized. Luke condenses a lot here, by the way. We don't know the amount of time. After she was baptized, and her household as well. Interesting. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And notice what he says here. She prevailed upon us. Uh, She was insistent. And she won. There are a couple of ways Lydia displays the gospel. I'll mention both of them to you. And younger worshipers, the second one is the one I wanted you to focus on. I I say that. I want you to hear both of them. But first, the first way she displayed the gospel is in baptism. She received baptism in faith. And this display really is an expression of Lydia's faith. By the way, you need to know that throughout the New Testament. Baptism is so closely connected to faith that sometimes they're virtually indistinguishable. So to believe the gospel in the New Testament is to, at some point, display the gospel in baptism. And the second way she displays the gospel is through hospitality. Now, younger worshipers, that's a big word. I know if you're on the younger end of the younger worshipers, it's a big word, hospitality. What does it mean? It means she just opened up her life to share it with Paul and his companions. She opened up her life to share it with the church. She opened up her home. She provided food at her expense. Come and stay with me. And by implication, let me take care of you. This was, this, by the way, this is the response of gratitude to someone who's just come to know Jesus. It's one of the reasons, boy, I said we're not going to get off on this, but I'm going to say this. It's one of the reasons... Why in our liturgy, the order of our worship service, we have the offering after we've adored God for who he is. We've confessed our sins. We've been embraced afresh by Jesus Christ and we've received this assurance of pardon, right? And so we put the offering at this point of thanksgiving. On what basis? For the redemption we have in Christ. That's how we give. That's what motivates the Christian to give. It's the gospel. And that's what motivated Lydia in the text 
to open up her home. This isn't a sermon on giving, but it is a sermon on displaying the gospel with gratitude, and that's what Lydia does for us. Now, what do I want to do? I do want to mention it. And so I'm going to do what I've done before is I'm going to drop a hand grenade and then I'm going to disappear. This household baptism. She was baptized and her household. I was a Presbyterian. (laughs) Pastor Tim said, help him. Many of, many of um, the theologians, at least over the last 500 years that I highly esteem, are in that Reformed Presbyterian stream. And I've been highly influenced by them. I left the Presbyterian stream for one reason, and it was baptism. And I have dear friends to this day who are still in it. And if I were standing up here next to my dear friends, uh, they would have a different story, but they don't have a microphone and they're not the pastor of this church. (laughs) But there are, let me say this, there are amazing, tremendous, and godly men and women who embrace the baptism of infants throughout church history, throughout church history. And I won't do it justice right now. I do not think this household baptism would have included infants. And there are a couple of reasons for this. And I'm just going to mention them to you. This is the quick hand grenade, okay? And uh, you can come to me afterward if you want more. Or you can even email me if you like. And I can email you some additional resources and uh, references. But one, one of the primary reasons I do not think this reference is, uh, would include the baptism of infants is because baptism throughout the book of Acts has consistently And everywhere, may I say it again, everywhere been connected to a response of faith in Christ. Consistently the case in the book of Acts. And we could go through some passages. I'm not going to do that because of time, but we can talk later if you like. That time and time again, so-and-so hears the gospel, they believe the gospel, and then they're baptized. And so at this point, I think Luke believes we can make some assumptions. And the assumption is this, those who were baptized understood the gospel and believed the gospel. Second reason why I do not believe this household baptism included infants is because there are four other potential household baptisms in the book of Acts. There's one in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with Stephanus, and there's nothing else that we're told besides that Paul baptized the household of Stephanus. But there are five household baptisms potentially in the book of Acts Lydia's example is the only one where faith is not explicitly mentioned among the household members. Four out of the five household baptisms include an emphasis that the household responded in faith to the gospel. So that's why, that's why, broadly, okay, there are other reasons why I do not believe in infant baptism. But this is, these are two reasons why I do not interpret this text or any other text concerning household baptisms to include the baptism of infants. I think we are to understand that everyone who was baptized in the household would have been someone who embraced Christ in faith and as a result had some level of maturity that as it were provided capability to understand the gospel. Okay, so that's that. And we could go, we could go, Farther down that path, we're not going to do that this morning. I don't know, perhaps 
I have this uh, dream that one of these days I'm going to have an evening of, of discussion about baptism and invite some friends, theologians, onto the stage, and we'll sit up here together, and they believe in paedal baptism, and I don't, and we would talk about it. Um, and we would do so in a manner that is, I hope, honoring to Christ, and that reminds each of you that there are tremendous men and women of God who are wrong on this issue. <laughs> A truthful joke for you. All right. Let's come, let's come back around to what Lydia does, and from there we'll land the plane, okay? So in addition to being baptized and her household, and her household, as I mentioned, she showed hospitality. Throughout the New Testament, hospitality is valued. <laughs> Throughout the Old Testament, it is as well. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans twelve thirteen to the church in Rome. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Women were incredibly influential in the early church. I had the privilege of having to answer, that is one of my questions toward the end of my PhD program, still finishing PhD program, but toward the end. Talk about the influence of women throughout the church. In the early church, tremendous amount of influence. There are a number of reasons for this, but one of the central ways women contributed to the vitality of the church was through gospel hospitality. It's a beautiful display of what happens in the gospel, isn't it? In fact, Paul will say this. Paul will say, welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. In that same text, by the way, in Romans. And that's, that's why Lydia shows hospitality. She's welcoming Paul and his companions as Christ has welcomed her into the family. When we open up our homes, friends, we're saying something about the nature of the church. We're saying that the church is not merely an event. It's not merely a social club. We're saying what the New Testament says. We're saying the church is fundamentally a family. And so I would exhort you to consider Lydia as an example. This has been convicting for me even lately because I think the number one reason why so many of us aren't hospitable, there are no other reasons, but I think the number one reason is we're just so busy. And may I say, I think if I'm too busy for hospitality, I'm too busy for obedience to Christ and for a beautiful expression of the gospel to show hospitality. Okay, well, that's how Lydia displayed the gospel. We started this morning by mentioning patterns, mathematical patterns. We won't go back there. Patterns of weather, seasons. All of these patterns inform us. In the text, we observed the pattern. What's the pattern? Paul traveled with the gospel. Paul shared the gospel. Lydia and her household believed the gospel, right? And then Lydia beautifully displayed the gospel through the work of the Spirit of God. 
Every Lord's Day, that's why we gather. We gather because I have the privilege, as it were, if you like, I get to travel here with the gospel. I get the privilege of sharing the gospel. We together believe the gospel. That's why you're here, I hope. You embrace the gospel in faith, and then we go to display the gospel. And in some beautiful sense, we all participate in this. When you're singing, guess what? You came here, you traveled with the gospel. When you were singing a moment ago, when you were reciting, you shared the gospel so that the rest of us could believe the gospel and display the gospel. And on and on it goes, this really is the Christian life. This really is the Christian life. And by the strength that God supplies, may this pattern continue through the church until Jesus Christ returns, we will conclude there. Let's pray together.